Our text this evening will be from Lamentations chapter 1. Lamentations chapter 1. I would ask you to stand with me as we read one verse, and we will read the entire chapter in the course of the sermon. But as a start, we'll simply read one verse, verse 18. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 18. This is God's holy word. Verse 18, the Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Hear, I pray you, all people, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. Let us pray. Oh, our great and glorious Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to see something of your severity and your goodness this evening, that your word would speak to us. O Lord, you command us that those who speak should speak as the oracles of God. I do not know how to do that. And so I cast myself upon you. Fill me with the Holy Spirit, I pray. And I pray that your word would speak to all of us. O Lord, the lost, have mercy upon them that they would not know your severity unmixed. Those who know you, I pray that we would constantly be rushing to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and resting upon him. Help us now as we look at your word for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you very much. Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 18. Jeremiah, we suppose it's Jeremiah who wrote the book of Lamentations even though his name is not affixed to the book. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, The Lord is righteous. Can you agree that the Lord is righteous in unleashing tragic destruction on sinners? The occasion of this book is the destruction of Jerusalem, the city of God, in 586 B.C. by the Babylonian armies under King Nebuchadnezzar. The people of God were taken into captivity. The city of God was burnt to the ground. The temple, the place of God's presence, his special place, the place he said, I will put my name there, was destroyed. The token, the temple as the token of God's covenant mercies was utterly destroyed. This book has some very interesting and important literary features. In chapters 1, 2, and 4, each Hebrew verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in alphabetical order. And in chapter 3, it's arranged in a similar way, except one letter begins each line of a triplet that forms one verse. So you'll have, if we put it in English alphabet, which it's not, it's Hebrew alphabet, but if we put it in English alphabet, verse 1, three lines would start with A, 
And then verse 2, three lines would start with B, and so on. That's in chapter 3. Chapter 5 is peculiar in that it has the same number of verses as the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22, 22 verses. But the verses begin with random letters. Now, all of this is in Hebrew. In the English, they haven't mirrored that for us in the translation. So some Bibles mark that each verse begins with a particular letter, and most do not. But this is a very highly structured poem. In fact, this book is a set of five poems arranged into one book. And these poems use intense imagery, figures of speech, and the careful poetic design and the abundance of figures of speech give a sense of severely restrained emotion. It's about the most emotional topic that we might be able to find in the Bible. When I preached this at the waterfront not too long ago, I said, I think I've opened, I think this is the worst book in the Bible. It's a book of judgment and pretty much just judgment. The careful poetic design and the abundance of figures of speech give a sense of severely restrained emotion. How can you communicate gut-wrenching nationwide grief? How can you, as a prophet of God, look on the city of God, the house of God, the people of God, utterly destroyed under the covenant curses that God had given hundreds of years earlier? How can you communicate what you see? If you gushed out tears, it would be too small to communicate the anguish. So this artistic rendering gives us a powerful sense of the restraint that the Jew who wrote this book exemplifies as he witnesses his nation ravished and ruined before his eyes. Chapter 1, which is poem 1, depicts devastated Jerusalem as a divorced, adulterous wife, abandoned by not only her husband, but by her boyfriends as well. She is stripped to shameful exposure before her enemies. She is unclean and avoided by those around her as an unclean woman. Poem 2, which is chapter 2, depicts, it uses the picture of what it is, a suffering city, burned, devastated, whose leaders and people are suffering. Poem 3, chapter 3, the longest chapter, depicts a man whom the Lord has afflicted. Poem 4, chapter 4, depicts the suffering of Jerusalem in literal statements without any ruling metaphor. He just talks about it the way it is. And then chapter 5, poem 5, is a prayer to God bewailing the suffering that he has inflicted. And this evening, later on in the message, a little later on, we will read chapter 1. We won't read the whole book of Lamentations, but it's intended to be read as a book. Jeremiah, or whoever wrote it, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, intended us to immerse ourselves in this picture of unutterable grief and suffering. But as we look at this book, as we approach it, what city is this that this book is describing? Upon what city did God pour out his fury? Let's think about Jerusalem's glory a little bit. 
because this is Jerusalem, the city of God. Remember the blessing that God gave to Abraham in Genesis. He said that Abraham would have a nation come from him and that his seed would be like the stars of the heaven and like the sand on the seashore. God said, I will bless you. I will multiply you. Kings will come from you. For example, in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. But for 400 years after that promise, he first sent them into slavery in Egypt. When they came out, he brought them out with great and glorious miracles, signs and wonders. He split the sea for them to walk on dry ground. He gave them manna to eat. He gave them water from the rock in the dry wilderness. And then through many temptations and trials, he brought them into the land of promise that he had promised to Abraham. It was a land that flowed with milk and honey. And in that land, he told them that one place would be more special than the rest of the entire land. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, the Lord will choose a place from your tribes where he will put his name. In other words, he'll make it identified with himself. There you shall bring all your sacrifices and offerings, and there you shall eat before the Lord and rejoice in all that you put your hand unto. And that eating that he's talking about is the sacrifices that some of the sacrifices that the Israelites would bring, they would offer, the, they would kill the animal, and then they would eat most of the body of the animal. They would eat the meat of the animal and offer a part of it as a sacrifice to God. They were worshiping before the Lord and eating, feasting before him of the sacrifice that they offered. So God was calling them to come and eat with him, dine with him in his place. And in that special place that God had appointed, in that special land, there was the temple, the symbol of God's presence. <clears throat> and not only was there the temple, but there was the king who would have his royal dwelling there as later. Think of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. God took him from following the sheep and made him shepherd over God's people Israel. It was in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, that God's king lived and ruled and that God's house shone in all of its splendor and glory. And where the people, the tribes, came up three times in a year. They were supposed to do it three times in a year. We don't have a historical record of exactly how they did it early on in the times of of the Old Testament, it appears that for a long time they didn't fulfill many of the feasts that God gave them. But God had commanded them to come up to Jerusalem and to worship him there. And so Jerusalem was the place where all Israel looked to as the center of their worship, their national pride, their glory, the identity of who they were. Jerusalem filled the minds of Israelites with joy. Like if you look at Psalm 122, verses 1 through 3, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. And that's not a five-minute walk. That might be a two or three days journey where you have to camp out in the open on the way as you're going up to God's house. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Whither 
the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Psalm 48 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. The promise that God had given to Abraham was that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you and through your seed. And the city of Jerusalem, as we see it here in Psalm 48, is depicted as the symbol of God's rule and God's reign over the entire earth and his blessing extending from Israel to the whole world. But now, in this book of Lamentations, we see that quiet Zion, that glorious Jerusalem, defiled. The presence of God has been cast away from Israel. The solemn feasts, instead of the tribes going up to Jerusalem, are quiet. The temple is a pile of smoking ashes. The king is in chains in Babylon with his eyes gouged out. Jerusalem has been divorced by her God. God has slain his own adulterous people. We might wonder what warnings did God give that he would do this awful deed? Did this judgment come out of nowhere? Did it come unexpected? No, about 800 years before this judgment, God had given Israel a song to sing, a song of warning. And in that song, he predicted exactly the things he would do if they persisted in rebellion against his good and holy law. And that song is the song that Moses gave to the people by the inspiration of God in Deuteronomy 28 and 32. And you might turn to Deuteronomy 28. I will, I will be just mentioning a few references out of 28 and 32, but we won't look extensively at the text for time's sake. When God's blessings to Israel would increase, Moses said you will get fat and complacent and fall into grievous sins. Then God will chasten you. And he did chasten them. And if they do not repent, if you do not repent, he'll bring terrible judgments upon you beyond the chastening. Now, as we read the book of Lamentations, if we read the whole book, you find many references back to Moses' song in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy and 32. The parallels are very striking. And I'm sorry, chapter 28 of Deuteronomy is, I will be looking at that, but that's actually Moses' sermon to the children of Israel. 32 is the song, so it's actually in two parts. You've got the, the sermon that Moses preached to Israel from Deuteronomy 28, and then the song that God gave them through Moses in 32. But both of these passages are reflected strongly in the book of Lamentations. <clears throat> in Lamentations 2.9, he mentions the king and princes being cast out among the Gentiles. And in Deuteronomy 28, verse 36, he says, The Lord shall bring thee and the king over thee unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. In chapter 28, Deuteronomy 28 and verse 53, 
the Lord through Moses warns the people in his sermon there, thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee in the siege and in the straightness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. In Lamentations chapter 2, Jeremiah cries out, shall the, woman, shall the women eat their fruit and children of a span long? Because that's what was going on in the city. Deuteronomy 28, 56. The tender and delicate woman among you, which would not adventure to set the sole of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness, her eye shall be evil toward her relatives in not giving them the fruit of her own body as food. And in Lamentations 4, Jeremiah bewails, they that did feed delicately, are desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet embrace dunghills. Back a little in Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth. And in Lamentations 4, our persecutors are swifter than the eagles of heaven. Deuteronomy 32 Turn over to 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 23. I will heap mischiefs upon them. I will spend mine arrows upon them. The covenant God of Israel declaring that he will become a warrior who fights against his own people. Lamentations 3. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. Deuteronomy 32, verse 32. In the song of Moses, Moses de- compares Israel, sinful Israel, to Sodom and Gomorrah. Their vine is the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Lamentations 4, 6, the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom. And so if you were a Jew, an Israelite, and you read the book of Lamentations, and you were well versed in Deuteronomy, which you should be, and which many of those who did have God's word, who did study, it would have been the priests, they would directly recognize what Jeremiah was talking about. He was declaring that the covenant curses that God had declared against his people for violating his law, breaking his covenant, that they were happening before their eyes. The Lord also sent prophets before this tragic destruction, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who had declared that God's judgment would come if his people did not repent. The curse that God declared on his people would surely So God did forewarn his people of this judgment. In that verse that we read at the beginning, verse 18, he says, Hear, I pray you, all people, and behold my sorrow. But why should we behold Jerusalem's sorrow? Why should we immerse ourselves in this book of lament? Why should we look at the gory picture of Jerusalem being destroyed. Jerusalem represents 
the world. Israel was a little world within the world when God chose Abram and said, I will bless you and make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. A train of events began that shows us that through the law that he gave them, the expectations that he had of Israel, and then the chastenings and judgments that he brought upon them, that it's an example for the entire world to look and see. This is the holiness, righteousness, love, mercy, justice of God. But also Jerusalem represents the church of Jesus Christ, Christ's churches. Lamentations is a warning for God's professing people. We are tempted to take God's mercies for granted and think that just because we have a temple mount in Jerusalem, God has to protect it. According to what we know from Paul's letter to Ephesians, the church in that city was relatively healthy. But from Revelation, we learn that some years later, it looked good, but it was not. Now where is the church of Ephesus? Where is Grace Reformed Baptist Church of Ephesus? That whole region is under the domination of Christ-hating, Christian-killing Muslims, and it has been for over a thousand years. Why? God allowed it. Just as God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem for reasons that are in perfect accord with his justice and righteousness, many of the churches of Jesus Christ that flourished in years gone by are gone. They are gone. So we must behold Jerusalem's sorrow as he commands us here in verse 18. Hear, I pray you all people, and behold my sorrow. And possibly he's asking there for sympathy. He's calling all, it's a poetic call for all to come and behold it. But I believe we should also take it as God's command to us to look and perceive and understand God's righteousness and justice and his punishment of sin. What did the Lord do to Jerusalem? Let us, let us obey this command in verse 18, and let's look. Let's behold the sorrow of Jerusalem. This book of Lamentations is not primarily a doctrinal book. It is not a psalm as such. It's not a prophecy. It is a lament, and we should read it as such. We should read it and take in the, the feeling the experience of what the people who had been called the people of God were experiencing as they went under the judgment of the righteous, holy, good, loving, perfectly just God of the universe. This book leads us into a long, carefully structured experience Suffering the judgment of God. So let us read chapter 1 together. And what I mean there is I will read it to you. Lamentations chapter 1, the entire chapter. And keep in mind the comments that I've already given as we think about this. Think about the the word that God had given to Israel, the declaration of his judgment that he would bring upon them. Think about the privileges that Israel had that are represented in being taken away here in Lamentations chapter 1. 
Verse 1. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow, she that was great among the nations? Remember, greatness among the nations and being full of people were part of the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. And princess among the provinces, how is she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, illegitimate lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen. She was supposed to be in her own land. She findeth no rest. God had given them the Sabbath and a land of rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted and she is in bitterness. Remember the ways of Zion, the roads that led up the mountain to Jerusalem were supposed to be filled three times a year with colorfully clad people bringing their sacrifices up to worship God. When he says, the ways of Zion do mourn because none come, it's in contrast to God's design, the beautiful experience of all the tribes of Israel going up to worship God. Now it's silent, empty, desolate. Verse 5, her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper, for the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture, and they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries, all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the enemy and none did help her. The adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Her filthiness is in her skirts. She remembereth not her last end. Therefore she came down wonderfully, terribly, astonishingly. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary has spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things, for she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary. They weren't allowed to do that. 
whom thou didst command that they should not enter into thy congregation. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their pleasant things for meat to relieve the soul. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me. The Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. From above hath he sent fire into my bones, and it prevaileth against them. He hath spread a net for my feet. He hath turned me back. He hath made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come up upon my neck. Guilt is no small thing. The righteous demand of God's law and God's judgment upon the sinner is depicted here as a chokehold, a chain around the neck. He hath made my strength to fall. The Lord hath delivered me into their hands, from whom I am not able to rise up. The Lord hath trodden underfoot all my mighty men in the midst of me. He hath called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord hath trodden the virgin, the daughter of Judah, as in a winepress. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye runneth down with water, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. Who is the comforter? But the Lord himself. My children are desolate, because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreadeth forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The Lord hath commanded concerning Jacob that his adversaries should be round about him. Jerusalem is as a menstruous woman among them. Then back to the verse we began with, the Lord is righteous. For I and here Jeremiah personifies the city as himself. I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you all people and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. I called for my lovers. The word is illegitimate lovers. But they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. Behold, O Lord, for I am in distress. My bowels are troubled. My heart is turned within me, for I have grievously rebelled. Abroad the sword bereaveth. At home there is as death. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. 
Thou wilt bring the day that thou hast called, and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee, and do unto them as thou hast done unto me. For all my transgressions, for my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. And thus ends just the first poem in Lamentations. Is God indeed righteous in punishing sin like this? In verse 18, Jeremiah says he is the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, is righteous. How can God be right and do such terrible things? Jerusalem's sin demanded righteous punishment from God. As we read there in verse 5, the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 8, Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. And in the, verse 18, the Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Verse 20, I have grievously rebelled. Verse 22, all my transgressions. They didn't love his assemblies that he gave them, so he took away their assemblies. The joy of their national gatherings was to be a prominent feature of their lives three times a year. They were supposed to come up at the Passover and at the Feast of Tabernacles and at the Feast of Weeks. They were supposed to come up, the whole, all the men in the nation were to come up with their sacrifices and they were supposed to feast together at God's house. Well, they despised those assemblies, so he stopped them altogether. They loved idols, so he sent them away to foreign lands where they could worship idols without any restrictions. They didn't thank him for the corn and the wine, the honey and the milk. They took it for granted and trusted their own strength and their idols, and he took away their food and their abundance. They committed adultery freely, and now their wives were raped and defiled. They held grudges and took personal revenge, and so God brought murderers and destroyers against their lives. They lied and bore false witness, and their society collapsed. The courts, the upholders of truth, are silent. There is no appeal for truth in a place that has had all law wiped out. There's only anarchy and confusion. The assembly of the elders where those lies were told were silent and still. They ignored God's Sabbath. They griped against them. When will the Sabbath be passed so we can go and sell our corn and wheat? Now God took them away. And the Gentiles mocked them for their Sabbaths. And they labor as slaves for their oppressors every day. All sin demands judgment. People say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, look at your picture here in Lamentations. Behold her sorrow, the sorrow of Jerusalem, until you know what judgment means. Lamentations is the word picture that tells us what judgment means looks like. And my friends, sin will do the same to you and to me. God's wrath follows sin like bees follow the smell of nectar. God's wrath, though it was delayed for 500 years, like Judah, 
will always come through. The promises of judgment made to the generation standing outside Jerusalem looking back at their destroyed city. They saw that the promises of judgment would surely come to pass. Sin is not just a mistake that we make. It's not a disease that we are a victim of. Sin is not just a little boo-boo. It's not just, well, I kind of screwed up there. Sin is not a little thing. Every deceitful thought, every hateful word, every lustful glance deserves separation from God. It deserves gnawing hunger, unquenchable thirst, unimaginable torture. Every sin deserves the burning of hell for all eternity because every sin is directed directly at the righteousness and holiness of the eternal, infinite, good, perfect, righteous God. So if every sin deserves such judgments as we have described and as we've seen in Lamentations, how can God not roast every one of us in the fire of his wrath? Well, if we turn the clock of time forward a few more hundred years from the time of Jeremiah, and we stand outside Jerusalem again beneath the hill called Calvary, and we look up not at a burning city, but at a strange picture. The city is rebuilt. The city is complete. The temple shines again in beauty and splendor, it appears but there is a cross on the hill of Calvary. And the perfect and sinless Son of God is hanging on that cross. Just as Israel was God's Son and the heir of God's blessings, Jesus is God's true Son and the heir of God's sweetest blessings. Where Israel fell into idolatry and sinned grievously against God, The Son of God, Jesus Christ, never fell and always overcame temptation with perfect holiness. He loved God perfectly and obeyed God's law every day of his 33 years on this earth. But standing outside Jerusalem, we look up at him. Before he's on the cross, he's led out of the city. On Passover day, when he should be inside with those crowds of people, worshiping God. When he should be feasting with the great multitude, he is cast out of God's city, led out, guided out under armed escort, and he's carrying a cross for his own execution. Look at our beautiful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is in bitterness and afflicted, as we read in Lamentations of the Judgment of God on Jerusalem. His beauty is departed. Look at him. He cries out, I thirst. Just like we see in Lamentations, no food, no drink. In the suffering of God's wrath, there is our Savior thirsting on that cross. Look up at the Lord Jesus on that cross outside of the city. He is naked as naked as the city of Jerusalem was in her shame and degradation. 
All honor is taken away. But unlike Jerusalem, his nakedness is not his own. It is ours. He has taken the judgment shame of his people. Look at him. His bowels are troubled. His heart turned within him. He cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why? Why has God forsaken him? We could understand lamentations when Jeremiah says, the Lord is righteous for I have rebelled. But how can Christ say, the Lord is righteous for I have kept his commandments and here I am upon this cross. He was made sin for his people. Just like sin brought the holy fire of God's wrath down on Jerusalem, it did the same on Jesus. The Father sent his Son to suffer for his people on this earth. The Son of God agreed to do it fully and freely. Jesus took the sin of his people upon himself, and he suffered the genuine judgment of God against sin in his own body on the tree. Only the Son of God could bear such a weight such a burden as the nature of the, the, as the son of God took the human nature upon himself as God became a man, not by changing into a man, but by taking the human nature to the person of the son of God and became one person, Jesus Christ, the son of God and son of man. He carried that terrible weight of God's wrath for those sinners who are his people. All those who are united to him will be forgiven of their sins, redeemed from the curse, and will never face the judgment of Almighty God. Even those of old Jerusalem who looked forward by faith to the Lamb of God while the fires of God's judgment burned around them were secured by the work of redemption that Christ Jesus would do. How did Jeremiah escape the wrath of God? By the work of Jesus Christ. Now, there may have been some righteous Jews who suffered with their city, but they are rejoicing in the presence of God now if they were justified by Christ. Christ's people trust in him for their right standing before God They repent of their sins and turn from evil. The Holy Spirit dwells in them and they walk with him day by day. Does that describe you? Do you trust him? Do you walk with him day by day? Are you growing in love for him? If you never turn from your wicked ways, which we're all born into, it's not just your wicked ways, but my wicked ways. If you never turn from your wicked ways and never trust the all-sufficient work of Christ, you will forever suffer the tragic, traumatic, terrible wrath of God. So now, if we do believe in Christ, and if we are safe in Christ's righteousness, justified by him, should we dismiss lamentations as irrelevant? 
in Christ we're safe. So what use is lamentations to us? We should just get on with merrier things. No, it is very profitable for us. Think often of the danger that Christ has saved you from. I think one of the sources or roots of our coldness and our lack of love for our Savior is that we forget what he's done for us. Jesus said of that woman who broke the, the bottle of ointment over him and wiped his feet with her hair and her tears, he said she was forgiven much and she loved much. When we see what we've been saved from, we'll love Christ more and will serve him more willingly. And also we must be warned, individuals, churches, nations, families who profess to know God are not immune to God's judgments. Amen. Jerusalem, in another, in another part of, um, in one of the prophets, they're quoted as saying, the temple of the Lord, Jeremiah, they're quoted, Jeremiah quotes them as saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these, in other words, God's temple is here. The enemy can't come in and bring any trouble here. God is protecting us. God's word is with us. We have God's servants on our side. We have the king, the son of David. We have uh, priests and elders in our land who know God's will. We can't be under the judgment of God. Jerusalem was in ashes shortly after that. Jeremiah himself writes this book probably even though we don't know absolutely for sure because his name is not in there. Families and nations and churches and individuals who profess to know God are not immune to God's judgment. And individuals, churches, and families who really do know God are not immune to God's chastening. God's chastening is very different from his judgment in its purpose but it is not very different from its judgment from it, from judgment in its experience in this world think of those disorderly believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul said some of them were dead and some were sick So in the midst of suffering in this world, as we, as we look around us and we see the suffering that is in this world, this sin-cursed earth, will you say, the Lord is righteous? This is what the term to justify God means. He's right in what he's done. Will you justify him or will you gripe against him? Will you say, the Lord is righteous? Will you resist and oppose him? Will you complain and murmur against his righteousness and his justice? No, my friends. Instead, whenever we see great suffering in our world, one of our responses should be what we see later in Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 39 through 41. Wherefore doth a living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. We have transgressed and hast re have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. So we should confess our sinfulness 
and the sinfulness of our nation, the sinfulness of our families, the sinfulness of our church, the sinfulness that we are, we should recognize God's righteousness in wiping us off the face of the earth. He has not done that. We, we are not witnessing a smoking building here tonight. We are not seeing the stones thrown down. We see signs of God's judgment all around us. But we do not have the utter destruction of everything that we hold dear as they had then. So we should praise God and thank him for his mercy. And most of all, that for those who are in Christ, the wrath of God was poured out upon his son, and he has borne it for us. Let's pray. O our great and glorious Father in heaven, you are righteous. O Lord, as we look around us and we see your judgments in the earth, as we see death, as we see sickness, as we see torture, as we see rape and all manner of violence, O Lord, as we see kingdoms fall, as we see churches silenced and taken away, Lord, as we see families disgraced, as we see individuals chastened and punished. And, O oh Lord, as we contemplate your word that tells us that eternal destruction awaits all the wicked, we say, the Lord is righteous. We are not. We have sinned. We lift up our heart and our hands to you in the heavens, we have transgressed and we have rebelled. O oh Lord, do pardon for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Please stand.